1: Could be an invaluable experience because you never know who you're gonna meet. You never know what kind of opportunity you find yourself in. And if you're just going down three or four different roads, You could ultimately miss the marker when it counts.
0: Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff.
2: Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm with today's guest, Colby Colbertson. Colby is joining us from Dallas, Texas. He is the founder of Colbertson Holdings and his portfolio consists of $20 million of assets under management that include multifamily, self-storage, boat storage, and single family. Colby, thank you for joining us and how are you today?
1: Yes, sir. Thank you for having me, Ash. I'm doing quite well. How about yourself?
2: Very well. Thanks for asking. Colby, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now?
1: Absolutely. So, Colby Colbertson. I'm from here in Dallas, Texas. I went to Texas Tech once upon a time, and spent a couple years with Halliburton back when oil was cool. The first time, 2016, came back to Dallas. I've been in the financial services front office, sales space ever since. Was with a separate company since 2018 until recently, actually, as a mortgage broker. I organized somewhere around 300 to 350 million. And closed commercial transactions, ranging from multifamily, self-storage, pretty much the core commercial assets. Within that timeframe, also found opportunity to get involved from the investment side. GP in 180 units, a so multifamily in Temple, Texas. Also an LP in self-storage and boat RV, as you had described, in Seven Points, which is just east of Dallas. And also have several single-family and short-term rental existing and construction ongoing on Cedar Creek Lake, which is also east of Dallas. So still involved in a lot of these projects and looking to acquire more and still heavily involved in organizing debt and equity for the Ash Patels of the world.
2: Interesting. You went to Joe Fairless's alma mater, Texas Tech. Yes, sir. (laughs) Okay. Let's dive into this. When did you get into actively investing in real estate?
1: I would say around 2019. When I started with my previous company in 2018, learned the ropes enough to where I could find myself in conversations, learned enough about the business, a lot of the type of diligence you had to do, the conversations that needed to be had. So I was able to lock in some land back in 2019, which ended up doing a lot of the development myself having very close relationships in that area. So I was able to start building and working on single family development from 2019 until today. And then over time, obviously began snowballing that into bigger properties, multifamily, self-storage, so on and so forth.
2: Are you developing multifamily and self-storage?
1: I have not developed multifamily and self-storage. However, I have organized and facilitated debt and equity products, you know, equity, Mezzanine for these things. Being a mortgage broker for the past almost five years, a lot of exposure to a lot of the different projects nationwide at various capacities. Currently, my primary focus is going to be From a personal investment standpoint, is the short-term rental, single families, and primarily lakefront properties on Cedar Creek specifically.
2: All right. So you found a niche on Cedar Creek, lakefront properties. Are you developing or
1: just doing debt on those properties or buying them? I'm developing them. So the land that I had was just under an acre, and I was able to develop it. To get it completely leveled, get the utilities, which was an easier situation than normal because it was just outside city limits, didn't even need permits. So it made the process a little bit easier than it probably would have in Dallas proper, putting in retaining walls, terrace walls, and then obviously going from concrete, stick and brick, you name it. And then I've done that now. I'm on my second, third, and then under contract on three and a half more acres in a community across the street. You've
2: got a good thing going with the single family development. Why invest in all these other assets?
1: I think especially as a younger investor in the industry, it's good to diversify. Being in the mortgage brokerage side, being fluent in the process of going through the close process, doing the diligence to identify a viable deal, which is the hardest part. I think just being fluent from multifamily self-storage and single family, it's advantageous for me. And also for my clientele on the mortgage brokerage side, because that is still my day job is to organize debt and equity for investors.
2: So not only do you organize the debt, how do you organize the equity? Do you bring investors to the table?
1: That's a great question. There's a tricky guideline, obviously. We don't want to infringe on any SEC guidelines. If we are going to participate and help you with the equity commonly, I would need to be a part of the ownership. Very similar, the 180 units, we were able to organize the debt, help with the equity, put together some of the legal documents, the insurance, the management, you name it. But obviously, we needed to organize some ownership just to make sure that everything was tick and tied and we weren't dancing on any lines that could be sensitive to us. So commonly, debt is going to be my primary focus. We do have some resources that can do mezzanine, deferred equity, things like that. But at the end of the day, I would say the equity conversation is probably the last conversation that happens if it does, because debt is going to be my strong suit, unless I'm obviously going to be a partner in the deal.
2: Yeah. So debt's the cheapest money available. The next service <laughs> yes, would be investor capital.
1: Yes, sir. Absolutely. Okay,
2: so let's dive into that 180 units that you're a GP on. Can you walk us through how you became a GP?
1: Sure. So I had a couple investor colleagues in the industry. They were brought a deal to a close broker relationship of ours. We realized that it was a bigger project than they were probably expecting, which needed a little bit of assistance, which is perfectly fine. We utilized a debt fund relationship of ours that gave us a really competitive deal, 36 months interest only, non-recourse, good leverage to where we weren't over leveraged especially when we took over the property back in 2022, rates were moving, actually. It took us a little while to actually close, had to extend at one point because the market was fluctuating in a way to where even a lot of the CLOs with some of the bridge lenders were pausing. So it definitely tested our ability to understand how to get these things to the finish line. But we were able to raise about $1.7 just with me and my counterpart, who worked with me in my previous company, and the team as a whole, we raised about $7 million. So I think it definitely gave us a good experience to organize both the debt and the equity. And we assisted in many other ways, identifying the best insurance policy, identifying the best legal team to work with, identifying the best management company, Which having that type of experience, which you know just as well as I do, Ash, that's invaluable exposure.
2: It is. What was the total purchase price of this property?
1: Sixteen million five hundred.
2: Sixteen million and the raise was seven million. Did part of that raise cover
1: capex or was it just all down payment? It was some of the capex and then also we had to do a rate cap, which the rate cap Mm -hmm. was not cheap. And that was really when the market started turning a little bit, so the lenders had to be much more conservative. I think the folks that do rate cap made their hay, and they're still making their hay right now. So there was just different expenses that ended up being in the seven-figure range between closing costs, originations, insurance, reserves, rate cap, CapEx. A lot of folks don't understand that it's not always what meets the eye, there's a little bit of an iceberg effect when it comes to closing some of those larger transactions. Colby, what is a CLO? It is a credit line for larger groups, like a bridge product, for example. They go would ahead. have a credit line that they typically go to, like a Goldman Sachs, Citibank, stuff like that.
2: And what does a rate cap cost
1: on a $16 million purchase? We had a 2% rate cap, and that costed us somewhere close to four hundred and fifty dollars If that was Four years ago, it probably would have cost you $75,000, maybe a hundred grand. And unfortunately that just was not the case in this particular, but you know what? It's quote unquote paying for itself. I guess it's somewhat got us in the green. So at the time it hurt, but today we're definitely glad that we put it in place. I know some investors that did even tighter than 2%.
2: That was a smart move. Can you explain what that 2%
1: does? Is it good for the whole three year bridge loan? This would be two years, and then they do the third year on an escrow. What that does is, for example, if you're floating sofa 400, no matter what happens, that's not going to allow you to go 200 basis points above your original spread that you close on, which in today's world, that saved us tremendously from what the outcome could have been.
2: So the maximum it can go is 2% above the initial rate. Yes, sir. And then what happens in year three?
1: In year three, it would have to expire. We would have to get a recap, the pricing of which is unknown today. We still got two years left with that. So as they like to say, hold on till 25. <laughs> so we'll see what happens when the time comes. No crystal ball, unfortunately.
2: Survive till 25, right? That's, that's Yeah, that's, that's what it is. Survive right to right
1: 25. I think <laughs> you probably heard that one too, huh? Yeah,
2: that was the big of the best ever conference this year. You were involved in raising 1.7 million. How did you do that?
1: My previous colleague, Brian, he played a major role in that. A big investor pool that we had in my previous company, a lot of active investors, a lot of friends and family he was affiliated with, which really gave us an inside curve to folks that were already very active in the industry. Any advice I would give, which I don't consider myself somebody that just knows everything. I do know enough to go out there and play the game. And I would say if you have a lot of close connections, whether it's first, second, or third degree, you'd be surprised how many people would be interested to work with you if you have a good deal on your hands. So we just pounded the phones. We shot out a lot of marketing and set up as many meetings as possible. And it doesn't happen overnight. But one of those things, you keep chipping at it, keep chipping at it, keep chipping at it. And again, like I told you, Ash, we did have to get an extension just because of what was happening in the market. So it gave us a little bit more time to put everything together. It was a challenge. I would say it was definitely a challenging deal to get done in the environment we were in, but I would say it was probably one of the best experiences from my commercial real estate tenure thus far.
2: Yeah. I love what you said. You pounded the phones. Who was the audience? Was it people that you already knew or was it people that were coming in through a funnel of some sort?
1: It was a 506C, so what we were able to do, we have access to a ton of different lists of accredited investors, family offices, funds. So I can break open that door pretty easily if you know where to look. So I was able to siphon a certain target audience, so I called various family offices, accredited investor lists various resources very similar to that across the nation that had a specific focus in value-add multifamily that were comfortable in Texas markets. A lot of nose got to kiss a lot of frogs, as they say, but you know what? We closed and here we are.
2: And to discern a 506C allows you to solicit for this deal. You don't
1: have to have a pre-existing relationship. That's correct. They would need to be accredited investor which is 200,000 for consecutive years or 1 million net worth, excluding your primary residence.
2: Where did this list
1: of people come from? Was it purchased? No. It's just with research, everything that we've been doing as a mortgage broker. This is information that commonly you come across very often, whether it's working with lenders or different investors. You hear different groups are more active than others. And you'd be surprised, again, how willing people are to provide information. If I were to call, say, Warren Buffett, and I say, okay, Warren, well, I appreciate your time. Do you know anybody that would be interested in something like this? He said, I know a guy, his name's Bill, Bill Gates, and I'll call Bill. Hey, Bill, give him the spill, wash, rinse, repeat, do it many times over. And I think folks appreciate young guys in the industry that are out there with good information and know their numbers and are willing to go out there. And other than just sending an email, I think that goes a long way these days. Take us through a phone conversation. So you call somebody up
2: and they don't know who you are. It's a cold call. How does that conversation start?
1: Sure. Hey, Ash, this is Colby Colbertson I'm here in Dallas, Texas. I'm a multifamily investor. The reason for my call. I have a value-add multifamily deal under contract. It's 180 units, two assets adjacent. The reason that we're interested in this product is due to a supply constraint, a very high demand. This has been mom-and-pop operated for about 15 years. There's numerous deferred maintenance variables that we could go through today. Maybe we could talk about that another time. The direct reason for my call is we're raising a little bit of capital. The minimum investment on this deal is about $100,000 for a credited investor. I believe this is a good deal due to, and I would name different variables like that, service coverage ratios from as is, my pro forma expectations, my rental market versus what I'm making today, which I typically go by a per foot basis. We're sub dollar a foot right now. Based on what the market is seeing, I would imagine that we're probably going to be somewhere dollar $1.35 to $1.40 per foot. This gives us this type of expense ratio, and this is what our return would be based on our PPM, which I have a copy of that if you'd like to see it. We've raised this much so far. Here's our gap. Here's when we need to close. Here's when you can expect that money back. Here's what your multiple is. Obviously that's fast forwarding it to the nth degree, but I would imagine that people that know the industry well enough can kind of understand that gist.
2: Damn, it's like Leonardo DiCaprio and Wolf of Wall Street. Good job. (laughs) I like that pitch. Family offices are notoriously very thorough in their due diligence. What's the biggest pushback you get from them? Or really the hardest pushback that you get, the really good questions.
1: One factor was obviously where rates are going because we had a floating rate. We had SOFR plus 400, with the debt fund. The second part would be not being local in the Temple area and not having current exposure there. So yes, we were using a fantastic property management company that's still doing a great job. So the combination of the current market conditions, the trending of the market conditions in a direction that was not necessarily favorable, to be candid, the inexperience of the borrowers at that level. And then also the small town of Temple, which if you're not from Texas, it's very hard to understand some of the pocket towns like Temple, Waco, Gerald, Texas, but we're also thriving. If you're from Texas, you understand that. So there was a lot of navigation in these conversations that we had to overcome. But just like I mentioned before, being a mortgage broker for as long as I have Having that type of data is something I commonly do anyway with various lenders. So it wasn't recreating the wheel. It was ultimately just sharpening the pencil.
2: sounds like a lot of questions that your underwriter
0: would ask you. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. We'll get back to the show. The first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you looking to raise money from private investors to buy commercial real estate? Syndicationattorneys.com is here to guide you every step of the way. At syndicationattorneys.com, they do more so you can do more. They create real estate syndication and fund offering documents, but they also educate you on the ins and outs of raising private money, ensure your offerings comply with securities laws, and help you structure fair deals with investors so everybody wins. With reasonable lump sum fees and over $2.75 billion in securities offerings created, syndicationattorneys.com has the expertise you need. But that's not all. SyndicationAttorneys.com also offers weekly attorney led masterminds, networking, and strategy sessions through their pre syndication consulting agreements. To learn more, visit syndicationattorneys.com today to get started. This offer is not available to Florida residents.
2: How do you answer the inexperienced part of your team?
1: One, when I say inexperience, it was just for that location and that size. Brian has an extensive background in real estate investment. The two partners, Carlos and Sandeep, great guys. They're engineers. They also have various assets under their belt as well. And I myself have done several deals. It wasn't an 80-unit multifamily property. So it's not like we were going in green. But I think people like vulnerability as opposed to the hot shot guy telling you, What you want to hear, it honestly works in your favor in this industry, in this market that we're in. So, that, and then combined with the fact that I have organized deals that are much larger and much smaller. Personally, I've organized somewhere about 350 million in closed loans. 150 of that was just last year. So, I know my way around a deal, Ash. And also, too, we're utilizing a property management company that has an outstanding reputation in the market. Numbers have a good way of telling the story which we have a good way of portraying those too. So combined all of that information and put a little bit of charisma and motivation in the guy on the phone, you got a pretty good product.
2: Yeah. You said something, the story, how important is that narrative, both pitching to investors as well as when people come in and try to get a loan from you, how important is that narrative? Look, you said the numbers speak for themselves. I get that. But do you really want to hear the passion and the story behind the operators?
1: I would say that's a major factor because think of this, Ash, when you get a property that's quote unquote value add, a lot of times you hear the words out of sight, out of mind, took the eye off the ball, not motivated. So when you have somebody coming in and commonly when people are buying properties, especially multifamily, usually there's some type of value add component. So the story would be, Here's why the property is operating the way it is today. Yes, it may have a little bit of a visual disadvantage. Yes, the numbers are underperforming, but here's how we're going to make this stabilized. Here's how we're going to make this property shine, and we're going to bring a new life to this property. That story from how it did operate, what we're going to do between A and B, and then how B will look and how we're going to operate it at that point. That to me is the story. And then combine that with the background of whoever's on the phone, behind the wheel, as they say, I think that the story is a major piece to really any property, whether it's a value add or it's a stabilized takeover.
2: If I'm in a potential investor, I'm going to ask, how did you stress test this deal? What's your answer?
1: It's a great question. So typically what I like to do is I go say 100 to 200 basis points above what the current rate is today. So today, my stress test commonly is somewhere in the 9%, maybe 10%, depending on what I'm working on. I amortize it. I don't do interest-only underwriting, which most underwriters don't. And then I typically will put some type of occupancy, like 5% vacancy, 10% vacancy, and try to show that trend over the next one, two, three years, which a lot of what people do these days is value-add bridge. So it's commonly 12, 24, 36 months. So I try to analyze what that exit's going to be. Again, no crystal ball, but I try to do a amortized higher rate, usually at 75%, so higher leverage. And that will give me an indication of where my leverage should be, where my rate likely will fall or how it underwrites against that rate. And also with any type of occupancy anticipations.
2: Good advice. So you can't just go in there underwriting an interest-only loan for three years. You've got to apply the principal at a 75% LTV.
1: Yes, sir. That's how the village is going to underwrite it.
2: Great to know that. Thank you. You mentioned earlier that you were a GP on the deal, but you had a lot of additional value that you brought to it. Insurance. What were the other things that you did on this deal?
1: We introduced a few management companies. We introduced a couple legal teams that we know. Obviously, keeping a lot of the organization with PLs, rent roll, CapEx, Proforma, a lot of that information we were able to have the bird's eye view, if not in the trenches. So whether I'm a GP or not, Ash, realistically, I'm gonna do that stuff anyway. So it's kind of common practice. Any seasoned mortgage broker out there are doing these things per deal. So it wasn't too far out of place for Brian and I to step in and take action on these. It was quite common practice, to be honest with you.
2: Good. That's very important because you can't just become a GP for bringing investors to the table. In this case, you're an integral part of the team. You're adding a tremendous amount of value, but very important for the best ever listeners to understand this is that you can't just bring investors to someone else's deal and say, I want part of the GP. That's a no, no. Good for you, man. What are you doing to find your next deal or your next partnership?
1: That's a great question. So I'm still agnostic to the type of deal I'm looking at to a degree, multifamily self-storage and single family development. I'm going to stay right there. If you try to focus on too many things, you'll never get anything done. The whole jack of all trades thing, it works in some things, but in my opinion, if you're going to be in acquisitions, you got to be in acquisitions. If you want to be a mortgage broker, you got to be a mortgage broker. So I try to work as a mortgage broker, working with various brokers across the nation, different investors across the nation. And if I come across a deal that makes sense, I'll take a deeper dive into it. For the most part, I'm trying to be a resource at organizing debt in this market because it's very difficult to do so in this moment. So it makes a ton of sense for me to be a resource at that capacity. While I have three or four different projects ongoing with these developments, I think that should be my focal point because I don't want my investors to feel my eye is coming off the ball. So I know that didn't really answer your question the way that I probably should have, but I think that in this market right now, if a deal comes across my desk, that makes sense. and know how to take it down, but I'm not actively pursuing just sifting through deals. I'm essentially trying to be a resource to those that are looking to find their next opportunity. That's great. And
2: that answers my question. You are relatively young in this industry. Looking back, what would you have done differently?
1: That's a good question. If I were to go back, I know that sounds a little bit obscure to say. I would probably be less aggressive when I first got in the industry. When I first got in, a little bit of a gunslinger. Let's do this. I'll do that. Let's do this. Let's do that. If I would have been able to hone in and be directly focused in multifamily, directly focused in value add, I potentially think I probably could have even found myself into more opportunity. Don't get me wrong. Everything that's happened has been extremely opportunistic take advantage of a lot of great opportunities and met a lot of great folks. But I do think that honing in on a specific focus in this industry could be an invaluable experience because you never know who you're going to meet. You never know what kind of opportunity you find yourself in. And if you're just going down three or four different roads, you could ultimately miss the marker when it counts.
2: What steps are you taking to hone in on that?
1: As I just mentioned before, I'm really deviating from any other opportunity that not value add multifamily or development or value add self-storage or development or the single family. The single family stuff, from a mortgage broker perspective, unless it's a portfolio or a build to rent community, the return is not enough for the cost of your time. That's the biggest variable that people don't understand. Your time is the biggest variable in anybody's book of business. And doing single family from a mortgage broker perspective just doesn't make sense. So I do focus specifically in multifamily and industrial properties when it comes to mortgage broker or brokering debt. And then when it comes to getting invested as well, I follow those same guidelines. And I know that still seems like it's a little bit of a wide fairway, but realistically, if you understand the bones to a degree- You can really turn through quite a bit of opportunity once you understand the lay of the land and how to get from point A to point B.
2: What is your best tip for younger people to increase their network?
1: Increase their network? I would say, don't be afraid to get on the phones. Email is one thing. You don't want to see my inbox. It's just full. Not everybody I want to respond to. Not everybody's even a person. It's a lot of the automated. so much of the funnel stuff out there that you kind of mentioned before I feel like if you want to grow in this business, you need to get on the phones. You need to get in front of people, go to events. No matter where you live, they're out there. Whether it's a 30-minute drive or right in your backyard, go out there, meet people. People that are in the industry want to meet other people in the industry. It is actually much easier than you think if you can get that burden in your head of being behind the keyboard, if you will, which a lot of folks do these days. I guess I'm a little old school in my newer ways. I just think that it's a little bit more of a personal touch, which people would prefer to be with a personal touch as opposed to a blast email when you're getting involved in a multi million dollar transaction. So that would be, in my opinion, the best path forward for anybody getting into the business.
2: Great advice. And you're an old soul for a young man. How about online marketing? Are you on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram?
1: Yes, sir. All three. So on LinkedIn, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn right now. On Facebook, not as active. I'm involved in some of the groups. That's another aspect where there's so many different direct focused real estate groups that people can participate in, as well as Instagram. There's just a myriad of different ways that social media is becoming a much more influential platform for investors because don't necessarily have to live down the road from Ash Patel to do a deal with Ash Patel. You could be in Maine, I could be in Arizona. I mean, sometimes you get connected through means of social media. So I think it's an integral piece for networking and creating new relationships. How do you use LinkedIn to network? A lot of times I'll post valuable information, whether it's market data, various debt products that I've identified, acquisitions that I'm seeing. I'll reach out to people that have a similar focus. There's just a trail of different ways that you could go about this. There's various levels to LinkedIn as well. Premium, professional, sales navigator, That give you more access to more individuals. You can be filtered to the nth degree that could really identify the finite detailed individuals that you're looking for.
2: Got it. Colby, what is your best real estate investing
1: advice ever? I would say keep getting into deals, keep looking at deals, keep meeting people, whether it's a phone call in person. I would say just be as involved as you possibly can. Even if it's not hitting right away, it will. It's a numbers game. Eventually it will hit. So just keep pounding the pavement, pound the phones, shake as many hands as you can and learn the numbers. Once you can learn the numbers, you can understand what a deal is and what a deal isn't. And you can also use that in your conversations as you create more relationships.
2: Have you thought about consulting for teams
1: of GPs on sales? Yes, absolutely. I think of all different types of articles I can pursue, but at the end of the day, still got to keep the lights on. Got to focus on one thing at a time. Right now I'm brokering debt across the nation for multifamily and industrial and finishing out some projects I'm working on. They make him a time when I can do that. I think just right now I'll be a valuable team member. Would love to get into some more deals. I'm ready to go and uh, actively pursuing deals of my own. So I would love the opportunity to meet more like-minded individuals.
2: You've got a great outlook. Are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Yes. All right, Colby, what's the best ever book you
1: recently read? I would say Emotional Intelligence 2.0 is a fantastic book. The reason I say that is because it gives a lot of real-time scenarios for people. I guess you could say investors, as to how to... Absorb information, but it's not going your way and take a step back, think through it real time and give a response that is productive as opposed to maybe being hurtful or what have you. So I think Emotional Intelligence 2.0 is a great mindset book to read.
2: Bobby, what's the best ever way you like to give back?
1: Give back, and I do it all the time. Different investors or just people in my life that are looking for just advice on how to go forward, whether it's real estate or whatever that may be, I'm always open to a call, whether it's 30 minutes, an hour, you want to meet for lunch. I'm always happy to give my time to give you my two cents, take it or leave it. But I just think that there's only so many hours in a day. And I think sometimes you have to spend some on other people.
2: Colby, how can the best ever
1: listeners reach out to you? I have an email, which is cc at com. Very responsive. My LinkedIn, Colby Colbertson, very unique name, probably easy to find. And my cell phone, I'm happy to provide that to you and you can put it in your program, but that would be the best way.
2: Awesome. Colby, thank you so much for your time today. We covered a lot. Your intuition and your experience as a mortgage broker, I think lays the foundation for everything you do going forward. So thank you for sharing your knowledge today with us.
1: I really appreciate you having me, Ash, and I look forward to future opportunities to work with you guys.